Well, I read a quote this week in a book. Many of us are studying this book together, and the, the author really gets at, at what we're doing this summer. Uh, Richard Lovelace was quoted in a different book, and he says this. When the full dimensions of God's gracious provision in Christ are not clearly articulated in the church, faith cannot comprehend them. And the life of the church will suffer distortion and attenuation. When any essential dimensions of what it means to be in Christ are obscured in the church's understanding, there is no guarantee that the people of God will strive toward and experience fullness of life. It's a mouthful, but, but this is what he's saying. Strong, lasting faith, a faith that, that moves you towards growth and maturity and flourishing as a Christian is a faith that is actually grasping a hold of something. And so what we're hoping to do with this series this summer as we walk through the, the Apostles' Creed, what we're hoping to do is, is really, actually with all of our preaching and teaching here, we want to give you something to grasp a hold of. Okay? Faith, faith in Jesus Christ is a lot more than simply saying, I believe in Jesus. And, and it's more than saying, Jesus saves. Faith in Jesus Christ is understanding who Jesus is and what it means that he is the Christ. It's understanding what his salvation is, what we're being saved from, what we're being saved to. And it's also understanding how Jesus has saved us and is saving us and will save us. And some of us, I think we're in the habit of saying, well, I don't need to know the how. I don't want to know the how. But you do. As your pastor, I say this with authority. You do need to know the how because Jesus is glorified in the how. He's glorified in his suffering and in his death and in his descent, as we've been studying. He's glorified in his resurrection, as we'll see today. Next week, we'll see he's glorified in his ascension and in his sending of the Spirit. He's glorified in his church. He's glorified in the testimony of his church, our witness. He's glorified in his return. He's glorified in his judgment. And he's glorified in his resurrecting us to new life. All of those are how Jesus saves us. And we have to understand, we have to study these things. If God in his grace toward us has chosen, he didn't have to, if he, but he has, he, if he's chosen to reveal these, these wondrous truths to us, we have an obligation to cherish them, to grasp a hold of them. And all of these glorious doctrines, I can assure you, as we grasp a hold of them, they will strengthen our faith. And they will give us greater confidence in Christ. And so obeying Christ will come a lot more naturally. Now, as we look this week to the resurrection, when we try and decide out of all of these glorious doctrines that we've been given, if we, if we try and decide which, the most, which is the most important of these things, of these truths that we confess, that's kind of hard, isn't it? How do you, how do you say one is more important than the other? They're all... They're all like links in a chain that's holding us up over the pit of hell, pulling us up into eternity. How do we decide which of those links on the chain is the important one? You cannot say that, that any link in, in, in that chain of salvation doctrine is unnecessary, but we can say that the resurrection is a particularly strong link in the chain, one that has always received a lot of attention. And that's partly because Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, I don't remember if I put this one up or not. There it is. Uh, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, 
our faith is futile. He's saying Christianity is stupid without the resurrection. We are still in our sins without the resurrection. When Paul wrote that, he was basically saying, if you, if you want to destroy Christianity, if you want to wipe Christianity from the face of the earth so that it, it no longer is annoying Satan and his minions, then you just get rid of the resurrection. And then the rest will come tumbling down. That is the, the big, another metaphor, another, the big block at the bottom of the Jenga tower. Why is that, though? What's so important about the resurrection? Why is it that in every single recorded sermon that we have in the early days of the apostles, the resurrection is, is central to those sermons? I'm just going to do a, a, a cursory look at these. Acts 2.23, this is the very first sermon. On the day of Pentecost, preacher, uh, Peter is, is filled with the Holy Spirit and he preaches and he says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter preaches that again in, in Acts chapter 4 and then when he is preaching to the, the Gentiles in Caesarea, he preaches the same thing. Let me show you from Acts 10. Acts 10, 38-41. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day. And made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And Paul is born again in that miraculous way on the Damascus Road. He receives the Holy Spirit, and Paul becomes a preacher as well, an apostle of Christ. Paul with Barnabas, they proclaim this same message to the people in Antioch, Pisidia. In Acts chapter 13. Look what he says here. And I'm just reading straight from Acts 13 here. Acts 13, 28 to 33. And though they found him in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So that's the early church. These are people who are hearing the message of the promised Messiah, who had at least had some familiarity with who Jesus was and is. But Paul communicates the exact same message to people who had never heard of Jesus when he's in Athens. Acts 17, 30-31. Notice the core of the message here. This is Paul to the people in Athens. He says, The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So, you see this? Just, it's just in the book of Acts. Wherever the apostles were going, wherever they were proclaiming Jesus, they were proclaiming that he rose from the dead. That has historical fact was central, it was key to their message. So two questions this morning that, that I want to ask together, and, and hopefully do more than just ask, but answer as well. Two questions that I want to answer as we look to the Scriptures. The first is this, why is the resurrection so important to Christianity? Why is it that if you take resurrection out, everything falls apart? That's our first question. Second question 
is what is the connection between the resurrection and our salvation? All right? So first question, why is the resurrection important to Christianity? Well, remember what Christianity is. This is the gospel announcement. The, the good news is that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. That's why what we believe is called Christianity, Christianity. We are people as Christians who believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Messiah. But there were promises in the Old Testament about who the Christ would be that had to be fulfilled in order to, be, to prove that he is the Christ. So as far as Jewish scholarship understood Scripture, this is in the days when Jesus walked the earth, and even before he arrived, Jews understood that the Christ had to be born in Bethlehem. They understood he had to be descended from David. They understood he had to, to begin to bring restoration to all things because the, the age of Messiah would be the age of the restoration. And, and his doing that would, would be seen in signs and wonders. Whoever this Christ would be, we understand from Isaiah, that he had to suffer for the sins of his people and he had to die. He had to descend to Sheol as Pastor Saunders has shown us the last couple weeks. And here's what else is true of Messiah, particularly relevant for our study today. Messiah had to defeat death. He had to. Any man claiming to be Messiah who died and stayed in the grave was not Messiah. One of those central Old Testament promises was that whoever the Christ turned out to be, one of the signs that he was the Christ was that he would not be held by death. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he rose on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The Scriptures foretold that the coming Messiah would be resurrected. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 16. You might still have it open from, from earlier. Psalm 16. I'm not going to preach through the whole psalm, but I want you to just see in there what's going on here. Psalm 16 is a, a psalm that comes up at least five times in the New Testament. Whenever the apostles are seeking to prove that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah, is the promised Messiah, they often turn to Psalm 16. Because they believed, as we do, Jesus fulfills Psalm 16. Now, in Psalm 16, the speaker is Messiah. Now, how do we know that? It's written by David. How do we know that the speaker is actually Messiah? Well, in the psalm, we saw this when John was reading it. The person who's writing or who's, who's speaking here is one who brings restoration to all his people. You see that at the beginning of the psalm. He is one who is said to be wholly devoted to God. He's perfectly obedient to God. He's the one who has the beautiful inheritance. Did you see that when John read that? What is the beautiful inheritance? David died. He didn't inherit anything. He is one who the psalm says has the Lord as his counsel. That means everything the Lord says, He says. Only Messiah can say that. He has the Lord as His instructor, as His strength. He says, the Lord sits at my right hand. Do you see that in the psalm? That means the Lord is His strength. Only Messiah can say that. He has the Lord as His security. He has the Lord as His joy. Those are all attributes of the Messiah, as we see uncovered elsewhere in the Old Testament. And some of those aspects are true of David. David did write this. He physically wrote this psalm out. It says at the top there, Miktam of David. But it's apparent, even as you read the psalm, that David knows he's not talking about himself. 
And we see this, we've seen this happen before as we've studied Matthew, haven't we? Jesus showed us when he confronted the Pharisees and said, who, who do you say the Christ is? What do, you, what do you know about the Christ? Jesus showed us that David knew Psalm 110, which David also wrote, was about the Messiah who is to come, not about David. When, when you study Hebrews, you see that Psalm 8 is this way. You see Psalm 22, we saw this a few weeks ago in our sermon on suffering. Psalm 22, written by David, ultimately not about David. David also knew as he wrote Psalm 16 that this psalm was not about him, not ultimately. The Spirit through David was pointing to a greater king who was to come. So as we work our way through Psalm 16 and you get to verse 10, this becomes really clear. And Saunders showed us this the last couple of weeks. Messiah says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Saying, you're not going to let me stay dead. You're going to raise me up. This is a prayer from Messiah to the Lord, acknowledging that he is not going to stay in the grave. Now, Peter, in his very first sermon on Pentecost, he takes this verse and he says to the people, this cannot be talking about David because David is still dead and you can visit David's grave. David's soul was left in Sheol. So this can't be about David. But there is someone who came after David, the son of David, the Messiah, son of God, who was not left in Sheol. His name is Jesus. Jesus conquered death. Jesus suffered. He died. He was buried. He descended to the dead, but he did not see corruption there. He wasn't imprisoned there. He conquered death. Jesus was raised from the dead. Because he was raised from the dead, he was declared to be Messiah. Remember the Messiah promise was that it's someone who would defeat death. Jesus defeated death. The Spirit declared him to be Messiah. Look at Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Very introduction to, the, to this famous letter to the Roman church. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh. Look at verse 4. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Son of God means a couple things. It, sound, it means, first of all, what it sounds like, the eternal Son of God, the one who is eternally begotten of the Father. But it also, throughout the Old Testament, there's an understanding that Son of God means Messiah. The chosen one who would sit at the right hand of the Father and inherit the kingdom and bring God's heavenly kingdom to earth. That man was known as Son of God. So Paul is saying here in Romans 1.4 that when Jesus was raised from the dead, that was the moment that the Holy Spirit declared that he was the divine Christ. He is the Messiah. And we saw that in, in Paul's message to the Athenians. Let me show you again. Same message here, but rather than to people who understood of, of, of a coming Messiah, you have people who didn't understand there would be one. But the message is the same. It says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, that man, from the dead. We have assurance that Jesus is the one who will return to judge the world because Jesus is the one who was raised from the dead. What Paul is doing here is taking Messiah language 
and he's translating it, he's, he's contextualizing it in a way that the Greeks would understand. The Greeks were not anticipating a coming Messiah. They had no reason to. They didn't have the scriptures. That was a promise for the Jews. But they could understand that there was a God and they were accountable to him. So, so when Paul says that God sent a man who died and was raised up, he's saying that the resurrection was a sign for everyone, not just the Jews. And that sign was meant to tell us all, this is the guy who's going to return and bring judgment. That's, that's what it means to be Messiah. Messiah is for everyone, and we know he is who he is because he was raised from the dead. So why is the resurrection important to Christianity? Because it proves beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus is Messiah. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, Jesus is not Messiah. One final passage that points to this. We've recited this a a few times together um, as our creed of the month. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.16 an old confession of faith. It even calls itself confession. Great indeed, we confess. This is something that the very, very early church would have said together when they gathered. This is what they confessed together. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, the mystery of godliness, Jesus Christ, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So here you have the incarnation. He was manifested in the flesh. God became man. And then the resurrection. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. Think about what that word vindicated means. It means proven to be innocent, right? Not guilty of the charges against him. Another way to translate this, same word in the Greek, justified. He was justified. Now, right before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus was brought before the council. He was accused of blasphemy. He was accused of, of a conspiracy to destroy the temple. He was accused of claiming to be the Messiah. And so they arrested him. And they, they, they turned him over to the government, and he was beaten, he was taken outside the city, he was hung on a cross as one who had been cursed by God, and he was, he was judged by his own people. But by his resurrection, Jesus was vindicated. That, that means everything that Jesus said actually proved to be true. He was totally innocent in regards to sin. He actually was the Messiah that he claimed to be. The Spirit, the one who searches hearts and judges hearts, he searched the heart of Jesus, found him completely pure, completely holy, completely righteous, and the Spirit vindicated him, justified him. And in clearing Jesus of all of those charges that were brought against him, by the most authoritative people in Judaism. Romans 1 says the Spirit declared him to be the Son of God, the Messiah. This is why Jesus' resurrection matters. Okay? All of his teaching, all of Jesus' miracles, all of his signs, all of his claims to be the Messiah, it's all worthless if Jesus stays in the grave. Had Jesus not been raised from the dead, he would not just be another prophet or another teacher, Had Jesus stayed dead, he would have been proven to be a liar and a fraud, a false Christ. If Jesus had stayed in the grave, the scribes and the Pharisees and that high council who condemned him, they would have been the ones who were vindicated in killing him. It would be right, according to their law, to kill a man who made the claims that Jesus made. Jesus was not innocent was not innocent if he wasn't Christ. He was guilty if he wasn't the Christ. But Jesus did not stay in the grave. He was raised. He was vindicated by the Spirit. 
and declared to be who he said he was, the Son of God. The resurrection just doesn't just matter to Christianity because of its historical claim. The resurrection matters because our entire religion stands or falls on this issue. Now, at this point, we have a choice. We could spend the rest of our time this morning investigating whether the resurrection actually happened. Not going to do that. that. That is an important endeavor. But really, here's what it comes down to. Okay, We know from 1 Corinthians 15 that 500 people saw the risen Lord. All 500 of them are dead now. From that group of 500 witnesses, we have the, the eyewitness testimony of just a handful of them. That's what the New Testament is. The testimonies of those who saw the risen Lord. And either that handful of eyewitnesses are telling the truth or they're lying. Right? It's that simple, isn't it? They're telling the truth or they're lying. There's very strong historical evidence that they were telling the truth. But if you, this morning, if you have it set in your heart to deny that Jesus rose from the dead, then there is nothing that I can say that will persuade you otherwise. There's nothing I can say that can persuade you those testimonies are true. If you believe that they're true, we can strengthen our faith. But if you don't believe they're true and you don't want to believe that they're true, well, then your rational heart, wicked, sinful, rational heart, is going to come up with lots and lots of excuses not to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So, for me, I I believe what the Bible says, that that sort of faith to believe what this handful of eyewitnesses wrote down, that takes a work of the Spirit. Only the Spirit. Cannot argue you into heaven. For the Spirit can take your dead soul and make you alive in Christ. So instead, what I'm going to do is is answer our second question. I told you there were two questions, so you should have already known that we're not going to do apologetics this morning. We're going to answer the second question. What does Jesus' resurrection have to do with our salvation? I want to give you a reason to believe in the resurrection. Three words. If you're taking notes, you can write down three categories here. Three things that connect Christ's resurrection to our salvation. Three words, justification, sanctification, and glorification. We are justified through Christ's resurrection. We are becoming sanctified because of Christ's resurrection and our glorification, which is our our own future resurrection. That is dependent on Christ's resurrection, all right? So first, we're justified through Christ's resurrection. Where are we going to get this from? We find this in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Paul says in Romans 4, 25, and, and I acknowledge we're jumping right into the, the thick of a theological argument here in Romans uh, that, that Paul is making. He's, he's building an argument, but we, he says this, and I want to figure out what it means. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, he says, and raised for our justification. Now, now we kind of get, because we looked at the, the cross a few weeks ago, delivered up for our trespasses means Jesus died for our sins. He took our sins upon himself. But what does it mean that he was raised for our justification? Now, First Timothy 3.16, remember we just looked at this, says he was raised for his own vindication, his own justification. Jesus was proven to be innocent. He was proven to be justified through his own resurrection. How is it that we benefit from that? How is it that you and I are proven to be innocent, justified by Jesus' resurrection? We didn't rise from the dead. That's what Paul's saying here. When Jesus was raised, you and me were also justified. Vindicated. We were made right before God and declared to be innocent and righteous and pure. How? Remember I said the halves matter? How? Well, three words here. Union with Christ. 
it is because we are in Christ that we benefit from his death and his resurrection. And what does it mean to be in Christ? What is union with Christ? Romans 6 puts it best. Romans 6, verses 3 through 5, when we had our baptism sermon several months ago, we, we looked, studied this passage. Look at Romans 6, 3 through 5. This is just a continuation of that argument from chapter 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's that union. We, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely, certainly, positively be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see that? We are united to him. We are in union with him in his death. We will be, we are united to him in his resurrection. And we are united to him in his death when we are baptized into him. Now, this first happens by the Holy Spirit's work in giving us faith. We are united to Christ in faith by the Holy Spirit's being poured out into our hearts. Call that Holy Spirit baptism. We're washed, we're made new, we're, we're united to Christ in death. And we testify to that reality through water baptism, going under the water. The key here, though, that's a different discussion. The key here is that by faith, we are united to Christ, and that unifying point is his death. That's where the lanes merge. Jesus can only be said to have died for us when we, by the Spirit's power through faith, take up our cross and are crucified with him so that it is no longer us who live, but Christ in us. Once we are brought into union with Christ in his death, then his death is our death. His death counts for us. Our sinful flesh is put on him. And then when he is raised up, we are raised up too. So if Jesus is vindicated in his resurrection, if Jesus is justified in his resurrection, so are we because we are in him. You see that? See how that works? When Jesus was resurrected, we who are in Jesus are also resurrected. That's why Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what does this have to do with our salvation? Well, the key issue here is union with Christ, isn't it? Jesus' resurrection means he is king. We saw that. He's declared to be king. He's declared to be Messiah, son of God, by his resurrection. But that only means wrath and condemnation and judgment for us unless we're united to him through faith. If we are in him, then we don't fear his return. If we are in him, then we are kings and priests with him. We are what he is. That's union with Christ. If by the Spirit we die now, if we die to ourselves now, if, if right now we become united with Christ, and we in faith, if we receive his death, as the death of our own sinful flesh, then his death counts for us. And if Christ's death is ours, then his resurrection is ours. And if in his resurrection he is justified, then in his resurrection we are justified. We are raised with him even now, even now, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. And if we are in Christ now, we will remain in him forever. We can never be separated. When God, through the Spirit, united us to Christ, 
God created in inseparable union. One that, as we are going to sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can tear apart. Nothing can ever tear asunder what God has joined together. We are his eternal bride. We are one flesh union with Christ. If we have died to ourselves, been united to Christ in his death, and been raised to new life in him. There is a lot more we could say about this, isn't there? I'm going to leave it with this. Two things. If you have not been united to Christ by faith, let today be the day. I would love to talk to you about that. Secondly, if you do believe that Christ's death counts for you, and that you are in Christ by faith, and yet you haven't actually been baptized as a sign of that reality, you haven't been plunged under the water as a testimony to the church and the watching world, I am in union with Christ, I've been raised to new life in Him. If you haven't done that, I want to get you under the water. I want to plunge you under the water so that we can testify together that Christ's vindicating resurrection is your justification. Please. (laughs) But don't do it for me. Do it because your faith is in Christ and you want to glorify Him with your life. Well, Christ's resurrection counts for believers because when we are united to Him, we are justified through His resurrection. But I told you that you're also sanctified. His resurrection is also the source of our sanctification. Sanctification means being made holy. It's a a process. You are not born again into Christ and remain a baby Christian. You are born again into Christ and you grow. You grow up into maturity. You grow in your obedience to God and your desire to obey Him. You grow in your love for Jesus. You, You grow in your love for the church, the people that Jesus has redeemed. You grow in your desire to know Jesus. You hunger and you thirst for his word. We call that growing, that growth process, sanctification. And the resurrection of Christ is the, the fertile soil that nourishes that growth. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3. We're going to see this reality here. Colossians 3, 1 through 5. Paul here is going to pick up on some of these things we've been talking about. It says, if then you've been raised with Christ, now stop, right there. We've only been raised with Christ if we've been united with him in his death, right? He's saying that if that's true for you, if you've been united to Christ, then you've died, you've been raised with him. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Why? Well, because, keep going, that's where Christ is. You're in him, right? So seek the place where he is, because that's your new reality. That's where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God. Look at verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth. Those are sanctifying commands. In order to grow in Christ, Paul's saying here, we must seek him. We must right now find our identity, our true self, in him, because we've been united to him, his death and his resurrection. We must set our minds on that heavenly reality where we are with him. Who we are in Christ, who is seated in heaven, must be more real to us, it must be more tangible to us by faith than who we are here on earth. Paul continues, verse 3, For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. The reality of our union with Christ is that I am not the old me anymore. I'm not a body of sin anymore. I am in Christ. I'm dead. The old me is dead. My life is in Christ. Verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So, so put to death what is earthly in you the realities of this world, 
the things that draw you away from Christ, the things that tempt you. Put that stuff to death. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. More sanctifying commands, aren't they? Why should we do these things? Because we've been raised with Christ. We don't do these things to to get God's acceptance. We do these things because of who we are in Christ. We are in Him, and now we must work to act like who we really are in Him. So, So why do I put to death impurity and passions and evil desires and covetousness, which is idolatry? Because I'm in Christ, and Christ is not impure. He's not led along by His emotions. He's led along by his devotion to God. He has no evil desires. He doesn't covet. He trusts God completely. And since that's who Christ is, that's who I am in him. And on the positive side, since I'm growing into Christ in his likeness by dying to sin, putting the sin in me to death, I'm also growing in his likeness by putting on his righteousness. Look at Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Put on then, put off the old you, put on who you are now. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ, nine, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. How many bodies? One body. Why one body? Because we're all in Christ. You see that? All of these things, these virtues, this righteousness, we all have that because we're in Christ. And be thankful. Because we have been raised up with Christ, because he's been resurrected, we resurrected, we've been raised up with Christ, we can be holy as he is, and kind and humble and meek and patient as he is. We can bear with one another, because he bore with us. Bared with us? Bore with us? He did bear with us? There you go. We can forgive one another. We can love one another. And we can let peace rule in our hearts and be thankful. Not because there's something about who we are that makes those things possible. It's because of who he is, and we're in him. We're not trying to be like him. We are already in him. We are living our new life in him. It's not an imitation. It's participation. Christ's death is ours. Christ's resurrection is ours. When we identify in Christ's death and our lives are bound up in his new resurrection life, then we are transformed. We become less and less our old selves and more and more like Christ, who we are in him. That's why we say Christ's resurrection is the grounds for our sanctification. We are new creations in him. And we become more like him as we participate in his new creation life. Finally, so there's a justified, sanctified. Finally, our glorification is also bound up in Christ's resurrection. Now when I say glorification, that's a fancy Bible word. And it means our future resurrection. Right now, we are spiritually united to Christ. That's our spiritual reality. Our spirits have been born again. We've been resurrected already. But our bodies have not yet experienced that resurrection, have they? Anybody over 40, say amen. We have, our bodies have, have, have not yet been fully resurrected. We, we have not been restored. That's coming. When Christ returns, we will be physically, bodily raised up from the ga- grave and given 
glorified bodies, and we will dwell in the restored creation with him for eternity. That's our future hope. We're going to talk more about that later because that's in the creed too. But the reason for that hope, the reason that, that we can be sure of that hope is the resurrection. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. See that language again? Be found where? In him. That's, that's union with Christ language, isn't it? Be, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Union with Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then he continues with, with what exactly he's willing to give everything up for. Verse 10, that I may know him and, look at this, in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is where we're just going to finish here. Paul says, knowing Christ and the power of Christ's resurrection is worth giving up everything for. Everything. Every bit of status, every, every bit of reputation, any prestige that, that Paul experienced in, in his life before Christ, it's all a heap of garbage compared to knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. What does he mean by this? Well, this is going back to our identifying with Christ, being brought into union with Christ. Paul's saying here that Christ's resurrection has brought him, it has raised him into new life. That's the power of the resurrection. Already we are experiencing the benefits of Christ's resurrection. We have been given new life in him. And this new life, Paul desires more and more to, to identify with than he does his old life. And so he says, this new life is so important to me. If that means suffering as Christ suffered, so be it. Praise God. If that means dying for the name of Christ as Jesus died, praise God. That, if those things happen to Paul, Paul is saying, that's because I'm in Christ. I'm experiencing, I'm participating with Christ, and this is making it more real to me. Praise God. And look what he says in verse 11. He's willing to do those things. He's willing to participate in, in life of Christ that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. That's future, isn't it? He's talking about a future hope, something he's looking forward to. And the more and more he lives this new life in Christ, the more and more he looks forward to and is assured of that resurrection. That hope. He already possesses the power of Christ's resurrection. It has given him new life. If you're in Christ, Christian, you already possess the power of Christ's resurrection. That's what has given you new life in Christ. But that is not the end of the Christian life. We're united to Christ, justified, sanctified in him. But because Jesus has been physically resurrected, we have a guarantee that we will be too. He's the firstborn of the resurrected ones. Colossians 1.18 says it like this. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. 1 Corinthians 15.20 and following. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That indicates that there are more fruits to come, doesn't it? For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, 
then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. That's a promise. This is not an idea. This is a promise. This is God's word. Romans 8 says the same thing. Verse 11, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Also, that's a promise. Christ's resurrection is a guarantee that those in him will one day be raised to eternal life, physically, bodily, with him. Now, church that I love and church that Christ loves far more than I ever can or will, do you see why this resurrection matters? Do you have something to grasp a hold of now? Do you have a reason to believe in the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus? You do. Believe it or not. There's a reason to believe it. Through the resurrection, Jesus was vindicated. He was declared to be the Son of God. The promises of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Christ. And we know that's true because he was raised from the dead. And through the resurrection, you who are in him now, you have been justified. Praise God. You are being sanctified. That is the source. That is this, his new life is the source of your becoming more like him and growing in him. And you will be glorified. You will be glorified. You will be raised to new life bodily, physically, and live in eternity with him. That's why the resurrection matters. Amen?